Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod, the podcast coming out of the sectarianism proxies and desectarianization project hosted at Lancaster University and funded by Carnegie Corporation. Today, I'm joined by Hella Marmvig, a senior researcher in risk, peace and violence at the Danish Institute for International Studies. Hella is someone whose work I've admired for a long time. She does some fascinating stuff on state, sovereignty, violence, religion, and was right at the forefront of this move towards looking at sectarianism, sectarianization, and securitization. So it's a real honor and a pleasure to have you on the show today, Hella. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Simon. I've really been looking forward to this and already listened in to several of, of the great podcasts, so, so thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure, and thank you so much for taking the time to, to join us today. So, Hella, just as, as we normally do at the start of this podcast, can you tell us a little bit about how you ended up where you are today in Copenhagen, working on, on such complex but fascinating topics, please? Yeah, thanks. Well, I guess there's this... Uh, one story is how I got into uh, Middle East studies. Um, I was traveling at, when I was 18 in, in Israel and Egypt and, and Palestine. Right. And, and that was a bit of a, an eye-opener to me being a naive 18-year-old uh, girl. Of course. Uh, and that was right at the time of, of the Gulf War. Sure. Uh, and, uh, and I had this very naive picture that we were saving the Kuwaitis from the dictator uh, Saddam Hussein right. and that they would all uh, thank us. And then one evening I was in a in a big discussions with uh, Egyptians, veterans in Sinai, and, and they completely turned around my, my perception of, of the relationship between us and, and the region. And they were going into how they would uh, gather the Arab uh, armies and throw out uh, the Europeans and the West. And, and to me, it was such an eye-opener because I realized that I had got it completely wrong and that there was something I really had to dig into. Um, and again, I was I was 18 years old, but it, but it was um, a forming uh, experience for me. And then I guess in, intellectually, I was very much um, molded by by the whole milieu in, in Copenhagen at the University of Copenhagen, the whole Copenhagen school. Right. It's very strong on, on, of course, on theory and of philosophy uh, and on, on very sort of uh, friends, intellectuals, etc., and very strong on, on different uh, schools in, in international relations. Uh, so I, I, of course, got to, and, and my PhD supervisor was uh, Uli Weber. But I think perhaps even, uh, or, or just as much, uh, I was formed by a year I had at, at uh, SOAS in, in London, School of Oriental and African Studies, um, uh, which is so strong on, on, on knowing the region and on languages. And there's a lot of students also coming from the Middle East itself. And I think that also formed me in the direction that, well, theory and philosophy and all this is, is, is very important, but you have to be in touch with the region and you have to be there and you have to have the knowledge and, and if you can, language skills, etc. Yeah, of um, course. 
That's that's really interesting to hear you say that. I I didn't realize you studied with Ole, and that's that probably explains a great deal about how your work has has gone in those types of directions. Yeah. So just going back to your time in 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 Egypt and and how your your view of the region was was turned upside down. What was it that was said to you that that made you think things were were not the way that they actually are? Well, I, I guess it was uh, this this clear uh, this clear message from from locals that they viewed the role of the West and of Europe in in very different terms that my naive perception sort of had gathered. So so um, so my my views were basically very Orientalist and very colonial sort of style because that was that we were were coming to rescue. Uh, sure. The Middle East, and of course, they turned that upside down and told me a different story about Western uh, domination, but also about uh, a, a pride in being uh, in, in being Arab uh, and a strong. This was this was again. It was back in in ninety one. Um, so things have, of course, changed changed a lot. But the, but the sense of of Arabness was still a very strong and solidarity and this. Um, this um, how should I put it? This tension uh, that that I suddenly realized both that my own perceptions were were wrong and also that I knew so little of of uh, and even uh, of the reading I was traveling for for six months. Um, right. And, and and I just realized that I have to I, I have to um, I have to know more. Um, yeah. That seems to be a common theme amongst amongst people who were outsiders to the region, if you will, people who've gone out and spent time in the region and then realised that that they know so little about it. And I'm sure that that's a common a common theme identified by anthropologists: the idea of going and sort of immersing yourself in a region and then realizing, well, I don't know enough about this. But when you when you went back when you went back home then after this trip, what was it that you were studying? Did you go straight into studying politics and political science? Yeah, I right. did. So I started political science, but but right away, when, whenever I could choose a, a topic on on the Middle East or write an essay on the Middle East, I I, I would do that. Right. Uh, so, okay. Uh, and at that time, this was in the nineties, so uh, there there was a certain sense of, of optimism. Uh, also in terms of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, sure. also a process, uh, etc. So, so that was uh, that was a theme I, I looked into a lot though those years. And then after my bachelor, I went to uh, to SOAS and, right. and got a master in uh, I think it was called uh, International Relations of the Middle East. That was the very first year they they did that. Uh, and then again, I did. Uh, my thesis was also on, on the Middle East, uh, sure. so I carried on and on. <laughs> and then it got to to going back to to Copenhagen and studying with Ole and and doing a slightly more theoretical PhD, I imagine. Well, um, I, I guess it was more. It, it was very empirical again because it was uh, two case studies of what I call the the non-intervention in Algeria. Um, the sort of near civil war we had in Algeria in the 90s, 
compared to the intervention in in Kosovo also right. in, in the late 90s. Um, so it was very empirical in the sense of the two case studies, but of course, um, the, the, its its main contribution was perhaps more theoretical because it was to uh, to try to show empirically how state sovereignty is constructed through different practices, some of them being uh, paradoxically intervention, and that we have, uh, at the same time, we have several understandings of state sovereignty uh, being negotiated in, in the international arena. Um, and so the whole underlying notions of what is state sovereignty and how is it constructed uh, discursively and through discursive practices, of course, rather uh, theoretical and, and, of course, also drawing a lot on, on again, especially on, on Foucault and Foucauldian understandings of epigenealogy and, sure. and discourse. Um, so, so it had the mixture of, of, of again, being, being influenced by the strong theoretical roots in, in, uh, in Copenhagen, but then trying to dive into to really empirical uh, case studies. And I think that's one of the things that I really do respect you for and really love about your work, Hella, this, this bringing together of the, the very rich empirical work and the, the really in-depth, detailed theoretical explorations, be it of, of sovereignty or be it of the, the securitization of, of sectarianism and, and discussions of identity politics. And I think it's absolutely fascinating and really important what it is that you're doing so i see that i mean for me there there are two main strands running through your work one is this this continued interest in in the politics of sovereignty and and what the what the implications of a sovereign state are but then the the other one is this this focus on sectarianism and securitization and sectarianization so where did that emerge from then um well, I guess to um, about ten years ago, perhaps when I started to dig into the whole notion of, of a Middle East regional order, um, in in the wake of uh, of the Iraq War in two thousand and three, when you probably remember this with the whole Shia crescent uh, thing that uh, that Egypt and and Jordan was trying to uh, to pull off. Um, yeah. Um, and and that got me interested in in how uh, sectarianism was was used uh, on a regional level, and sure. also the time I was traveling a lot in, in in Egypt, and there you also had some strong sectarian uh, language, which kind of surprised me because uh, Egypt is of course a, a highly hardly no Shias in in Egypt so I was also interested in where, where does this come from um, and then but I didn't really that just started the interest um, but then with the whole uh, unfolding of, of the Syrian uprising which I've spent a lot of, of time on uh, that was a strong dimension from very early on, and I know you talked to uh, Phillips about about this as well. But but how the Assad um, regime uh, from from very early on managed to um, to show up sectarian tensions and sectarian fears with uh, minorities in in particular. 
um, and really created uh, self-fulfilling prophecies. Yeah. So in that sense, it was also uh, an interesting case of how, actually to me, how constructive, uh, constructivism or how socially constructed identities, how that play out in, in, in practice uh, from, uh, I wouldn't say from hardly being there, but, but not being... Uh, very articulated to to being so strong in in the Syrian conflict and and later on I have um, the last couple of years I have uh, interviewed several uh, fighters uh, in Syria both on the side of, of the rebels but also on the other side um, Hezbollah fighters for instance and on both sides they are they are highly sectarian um, in, in aggressive terms, in aggressive sectarian terms, uh, and, and very fearful of of uh, the other. And even rather, uh, I should say, perhaps from from the more secular uh, opposition, uh, Syrian opposition, uh, are fearful of what they call uh, Shia militias. Um, Taking over Syria, taking over their 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 land, their houses, and also inserting a, a new kind of, of strong religious feeling into Syrian society, and and pointing to all kinds of, of uh, symbols of this. For instance, the, the kind of identity card they they carry, or the kind of amulets or jewelry, etc., are all seen as signs that they are. That they are enmassing um, this uh, Shia uh, religion on, on Syria. Um, so how how these have gotten so entrenched uh, in in just a few years? Uh, I think it's I'm, I'm not sure. Fascinating is is the right word because it's it's not very positive. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Intellectually rich, perhaps. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, but what I think is really interesting, though, Hela, is that I mean, you were in many ways ahead of the, the 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 curve in terms of this move towards sectarianization, in the sense you you had some some stuff published in in Mediterranean politics and 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 other things, looking at how identity became instrumentalized. And I think it's really interesting to see that you were you were doing that, but you've also gone out and. And started to look at how those narratives gain traction, and we—I've heard you speak about uh, about the role of, of popular culture, for instance. Mm-hmm. And I wonder—is that one of the reasons why why these identities have become so sticky? If 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 we want to use um, Saluk's terminology, do you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I think. What is interesting for us also as, as political scientists is perhaps to look uh, not only on, on, on political speech uh, and, and, and the practices of, of governments in the region, which has been a strong focus, I think, for, for several years and for good reasons, because we'll know how how the incumbent regimes have, have used sectarianism to, to cling to power. But I think we should perhaps really look elsewhere to see uh, a much more aggressive sort of sectarianism and, and popular culture is one of them. And what I've been digging into for for a few years now, and I really hope it's going to come out soon. <laughs> I've been working <laughs> a lot on it. Um, but what I've been digging into is what I call uh, Hezbollah music videos. Uh, and I think Hezbollah wouldn't call it music videos, but I think it's, <laughs> it's the best term to describe it. What might they it's, call it? <laughs> 
uh, I guess perhaps they would call it uh, nasheed. Right. So yeah. Okay. Like religious uh, music. Sure. But, but uh, many of them are not. Uh, uh, are rather sort of Arabic pop songs that they just change the lyrics. Um, and so it's it's much more like uh, MTV music videos to me. Um, but anyways, it's it's uh, music videos that are, some of them are produced by Hezbollah, but all, others are produced by 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 Hezbollah sympathizers and Hezbollah fighters, and they share them and circulate them on social media. And so the and and they of course used both to to mobilize fighters for fighting in 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 Syria and I think also to provide a, a sort of narrative back home and what are we doing and and why are our men sure. dying and here we will find I think a, a much more explicit uh, religious element than we see in in sort of political discourse. And, and a much more uh, aggressive and, and assertive sort of prideness in being Shia and in extinguishing the other. And the other is often not talked about as, as a Sunni other, uh, but rather as uh, takfiris or Wahhabist, etc. But sure. to me, these are, these are worth paying attention to because it's, it's a way to talk about Sunnis uh, as the other, without really calling them Sunnis, but everybody knows what we are referring to. Of course, and, yeah. And, and, and one of the reasons I'm digging into this is also because I think, and this is perhaps worth underlining as well, is that that in, in political speech and also in Hezbollah's political speech, and also the interviews I've done with officials from Hezbollah, um, they are very careful not to talk into... Uh, direct, overt, sectarian terms. And I think we find this across in, in very many countries, uh, in, in, in the mixed, in, in the Levant especially, this carefulness or cautions talking in, in direct sectarian terms. And and Fanah Haddad, uh, whose work I really in, enjoy and is quite inspired by, he he has referred to this in his book on, on Iraq as uh, the sectarian taboo. And, and perhaps I think he got the term also from uh, Van Damme's uh, original work on, on Syria. And they describe this, uh, this sectarian taboo that we will find in political discourse uh, as a kind, of, um, a kind of political silencing uh, um, in terms of sect, that you, are not, that you have to tread carefully when speaking uh, or referring to sect, both your own sect or others' sect. And that you uh, that you generally uh, avoid it in in official political speech and uh, and discourse and also in the elite discourse and often with uh, academics uh, and this of course has partly roots in, in the whole sort of strong Arab uh, nationalism and the state building yeah, processes. Sure. Um, but I think this is something that we perhaps, as uh, us scholars that, that study sectarianism, that we should pay a little more uh, attention to how this uh, taboo uh, is still there. We, we tend perhaps uh, to focus only on where we see the strong uh, sectarian articulations, but we should perhaps also pay attention to the, the constrainers to uh, sectarianism and how these are either evaded or, or transgressed. 
Yeah, I certainly echo those those sentiments. Hello, just before we we continue with with this discussion of the videos, I'm I'm curious. You mentioned that that they're produced by um, Hezbollah officially or or members of Hezbollah. Is this a sense of of there is the the sort of the official set of videos that has stimulated people to go out and make their own, or is it that they're they're more of an official line with regard to the the type of videos that are being made? Mm, I think perhaps a little of both. Right. I think what we've seen, uh, and, and not least with with the whole with the Arab uprisings and and with with the Syrian war in particular is of course this both sort of civil journalism with uh, and, and social media and, and filming playing such a vital role on, on all sides and all groups using this to uh, both to mobilize and to get their message out and and of course what is interesting here is that it's also on a on a more individual basis so it's not necessarily a a party line or a particular movement, uh, but but just individuals that sort of mix um, mix and mash up their yeah. own uh, productions, and so we even see, even though Hezbollah is such a hierarchical uh, organization, we we even see this sort of uh, uh, these tendencies to make your your own, uh, perhaps not strictly in line with. Um, and with the party and the, the movement, but I would also say that that they, even though it might not be condoned or approved directly from Hezbollah, I think they would be uh, sanctioned if it if it was very much against the the movement's own message, so to speak. Sure. Yeah. It it seems that that there's. A, a very real possibility of this going out beyond the the limits of the restrictions put in place by um, by Hezbollah's leadership with regard to what these videos should be. So yeah. it seems that that there is scope for it to to get a little bit out of control. And I mean, you you've referred to uh, Derrida and talked about free play here, and I think that's that's a really quite an interesting way of of looking at things. But it also seems that it can spread out beyond obviously Syria and, and Lebanon, and and quite easily spread across across the region and across Shia communities more broadly. I imagine. Yeah, and I think that this is. Of course, I, I guess also why Hezbollah itself um, uses the, the the more sectarian uh, narrative in, in terms of Syria because it enables them to to mobilize more transnationally, and these videos uh, play play the same role. And many of them are, or some of them are, for instance, also made uh, and circulated on. On Iraqi and, and Iranian social media and, and YouTube channels, uh, etc. So, the, so this is widely shared uh, among, and 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 I gather from the, the commentary on on the YouTube uh, clips that that also in Christian communities in Lebanon might also listen in to some of the songs and and the videos. Um, right. That's really interesting. I imagine that that's related to to Daesh in particular, rather than the sort of the more more traditional Sunni communities. Um, uh, sorry, I, I didn't. It's it's related to to Islamic State in what sense? In the sense that that it would be a consequence of fear about Daesh, rather than 
a reflection of, of traditional relations between uh, between the different sects in Lebanon? Yeah, but I think also a, a fear of, of, of Sunni extremism. Sure. Um, so, again, referring back to this notion of, of takfiris and Wahhabis, that in general there's a, there's a fear with, with Shia communities in Lebanon, and but also with with very many Christians uh, have, for many years, also that the, the Syrian war would spill over to uh, to Lebanon, and at some point there was also a rise in, in 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 suicide bombs from some of the groups in in Syria. So I think sure. the, the also the notion uh, with with both Hezbollah and, and some, not all parts of the Christian communities, but are really that it's it's Sunni extremists and again playing in to the narratives about the, the Saudis being behind this, the, the Wahhabists and um, directing this, um, and, and sometimes also, uh, of course, referring to, to the US and Israel. So it's the US, Israel and Saudi being behind Sunni extremist movements. And, and and in my interviews with Hezbollah officials, they, to them, there are no no opposition groups in Syria really that are not terrorist groups and that are not very Islamist extremist groups. Right. Um, uh, so there, and and I think it's uh, it's and and it's a uh, it's a narrative that gained traction and that also of course plays with the. The West notion of, of the conflict in, in in Syria and what's at stake, uh, um, and I, I think in, in that sense they they succeeded um, to together with with Assad and Iran that this has become a, a, a dominant uh, picture of, of what's going on in Syria that it's it's Sunni extremist groups that have been taking over or even been sure. there from the beginning. <laughs> Right. Well, I can certainly see how that would be the case. And I think I, I certainly agree with you. And I find it really convincing what you're saying about the need to look not only at the formal rhetoric coming out of Hezbollah leadership, but also to interrogate the reasons why they're saying and indeed not saying the things that they're not saying, but that mm-hmm. we need to bring this this popular culture into the, the dialogue as well. And I think it's really important what you're doing, Hella. So I'm really looking forward to seeing this. Are we going to see it in book form? Is it going to be um, articles? What what form is it going to take? Um, articles. Articles. Yeah. Wonderful. Some sometime next year. <laughs> Very exciting. Well, Hella, I'm conscious that we've taken up a lot of your time, and although I could I could quite happily talk to you all day about this and bring in the the critical approaches that you're using to study the Middle East and reflect on the nature of state sovereignty, I, I'm conscious I don't want to take up any more of your time. So perhaps what we'll have to do is get you on again, and we can talk about the application of critical theories to the Middle East. But yeah, I would love to. Thank you so much, Hella. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sam.